Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see with our hearts and minds that you have authority over all things, as this was manifested in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Ten years ago, if you had told me the following question would be a controversial question to ask, I would have told you, I don't believe you. But the question of where do you get your news from has become a hot-button issue in this day and age. And an equally big question is, how do you know that you can trust them? Information and misinformation in our day and age seems to be a huge problem. And more so, if I did a survey of you all and had you write down your favorite news source and what news source I should avoid, I know well enough that we're at least diverse enough that probably I would learn that I should neither trust nor listen to anybody's favorite news source. But St. Matthew is also in the business of news. He is in the business of good news, and he wants to show us that we can trust Jesus's authority, that Jesus's teaching and doings are not something that we can distrust. Leading up to this passage is the famous Sermon on the Mount, which I am sure that all of us at least have a cursory understanding of, or have at least read it once in our lifetime. If you haven't, or it's been a long time, I urge you to go home and read it this afternoon and read it again and again. The Sermon on the Mount is an intentional echoing of the giving of the law to Moses. It starts with the same words that that passage in, in Exodus 20 starts with. As Moses goes up onto the mountain, so Jesus goes up onto the mountain, to give the new understanding of the law, to unpack what the law looks like in the new covenant. And as Jesus finishes teaching, let us read what is said at the end of chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, that's all that he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, well, not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, the great, a great crowd followed him. <clears throat> Surely many in this crowd were astonished, and some perhaps wondered, how does he have this authority? How does he think? that he can teach in such a way, when even our best teachers don't teach with such authority. And Matthew seeks for us to see that this isn't some false authority, this isn't hubris on Jesus' part, but that Jesus really does have the authority to teach and to do much more than teach. A leper comes, as we read, and kneels before him. There's many, there's several pieces of significance in this action. First, 
is that when a man kneels and calls someone Lord in Scripture, if that person he's kneeling before and calling him Lord does not deserve such action, he is rebuked. We see this with angels as people try to worship them. In the Old and New Testament, and the angels say, no, no, don't worship me, worship God. And yet the leper kneels before him and calls Jesus Lord. I'll talk more about that understanding of why the calling of Jesus as Lord is so important in a few minutes. But here we see that Jesus accepts the reverence that is due unto him. But there's something more here even than that. I'm sure we all remember the beginning of COVID like it was a bad dream and wish that in fact it was a bad dream. I spent a lot of time during the beginning of COVID walking just to kind of deal with everything going on, and I'd go out into the woods and walk for a while. And one day I was out there, and I remember we all sort of had this level of fear, some more than others. And these two women were walking towards me out in this trail way out in the middle of the woods. And I, I would carry a little, a little thing that I could pop up onto my face easily because I didn't really feel any need or urge to wear a mask in the middle of the woods by myself, but I wanted to not freak out people that were coming towards me, and I would be really good about, you know, walking on one side of the trail so they could walk on the other side of the trail, and so on and so forth. And this poor woman that was walking towards me sort of jumped off to the side of the trail. <laughs> and I felt really bad for her. I, I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to give you plenty of room. Don't, don't you worry. But there's a fear of sickness. And in order to really understand how incredible what is going on here, not only has Jesus accepted the reverence of this leper, but then he touches the leper. And to understand that, it is something like at the beginning of COVID, somebody going out and hanging out with somebody who has COVID just to comfort them. We have to flip back to Leviticus 13. I don't recommend you reading Leviticus 13 unless you're really bored. Actually, you should read Leviticus 13 at some point, sorry. But read the Sermon on the Mount first, several, several times. Because Leviticus 13 has to do with all the things that somebody who has a skin disease has to go through. Now, when it says leprosy, it may not be that actual disease leprosy that we know today, but some sort of skin disease. And it goes on and on and on about the things that they need to do in order to keep the community safe and healthy. But verse 45 and 46 has the real kicker. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let his hair on his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and shall cry out, unclean, unclean, so as to warn people. But not only that, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. He shall dwell. He shall, his dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, this may seem cruel to us at first glance. And now that we have a little bit better of a medical understanding, we can deal with things like leprosy or other diseases that may be frightening, <clears throat> but not having to send people out of the camp. But there was a reason for this, because the last thing 
that we wanted to happen. The last thing that those in the camp would have wanted to happen was some horrible skin disease that was easily passed to rip through the camp and cause damage. And so the lepers were outcasts. But Jesus opens the door for this leper's healing. He doesn't shy away. He doesn't say, oh, let me go put on my neoprene gloves so I don't get your icky skin disease all over me. He touches him and says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy, the leprosy was cleansed. But then Jesus says to him to go and go to the priest. And that was part of the law, that the lepers had to go to the priest to be examined. The priest's job was to examine and make sure that the leper was, in fact, clean. And then the leper could return to his normal life, no longer a leper. And so even in this moment, yes, Jesus knows that he's been cleansed, but Jesus still upholds the law. And Matthew wants his readers to see that Jesus does fulfill and uphold the law. He doesn't undo it, but makes it complete. Now you may be wondering, well, if Jesus healed then, why does he not always heal today? In one sense, he does heal. And in fact, since I've been at this parish, I've seen healings, not where somebody walks up with a cane and they get sort of whacked on the face or something and they go dancing back to the back of the church. But I've seen people who struggle to walk, get redeemed, have the ability to walk again. I've seen people healed from cancer. I've seen these things at this parish. And yes, they took medical advice, but they also took all of our prayers and Christ honored them. But we've also seen beloved ones die of the same diseases that we've seen healed in others. And so how do we reckon with this? First and foremost, Christ heals our soul. Christ, like he has done for the leper, takes us out from our alienation from God and brings us into Christ's community. Christ heals us so that we can be a part of his body. <clears throat> he invites you and I in to this spiritual healing so that we might be part of the body of Christ. But yes, we will still experience pain. And yes, this leper and the servant of the centurion will eventually experience the first death. But their trust was in Christ, and they also experienced the resurrection, where final full healing will occur, where at the end of time, we'll have perfect unity with God, where at the end of time, those pains and aches, those sorrows and heartaches of this life will be wiped away so that we will experience true and full communion with God. I, I Googled it because I wasn't sure, which is always a fun way to start, right? But I think our infomercials are still the same, still available today on TV, but Julie and I just kind of stream, and so you don't really get subjected to infomercials quite so much that way. And then I actually ended up watching infomercials last night. It was a weird night, but... <laughs> We all, we all know what I'm talking about, right? There's some sort of 
gimmicky product and they're like, well, look at this amazing product. And for 12 payments of $19.99, it can be yours. It's easy. You know, that's less than a cup of coffee. And they always get, get, get to the end and they say, but wait, there's more. <laughs> but in this case, Matthew continues on. And there's kind of that, but wait, there's more, guys. Keep, keep listening. <clears throat> but what he's about to tell us What he tells us after the healing of the leper is actually even more amazing than the healing of the leper. A centurion comes. And not only does a centurion come to this itinerant preacher who's doing these miracles that surely must seem weird to a Roman posted in some far-off outpost far away from his family and friends, but he calls him Lord. There's a lot of significance here. So let's go a little further than we did earlier into why calling Jesus Lord is so important. If we go to the Hebrew Old Testament, there's what's called the tetragram. Yep, that's right. In the Old Testament, which is four letters, which we can transliterate or or transfer into our language as Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh. But they would be vowelized most of the time, but not always. So that the reader would know that they're to read it as Adonai or Lord. So when you get to the Greek Old Testament, that's how they translated it. And in most of our Old Testaments, in fact, most of the ones that you would read unless you are a King James person, will translate Yahweh to Lord. And so when we see this in the New Testament, when we see people calling Jesus Lord, it should give us pause because it's the same word. And in many cases, especially in the epistles, it's an intentional pointing out that Jesus is the second person of the the triune God. He is the incarnate Lord born among us. So I'm not entirely sure why the centurion was calling him Lord, but either way, whether he's calling him Lord and equating him with a God or calling him master, as may be the case in this specific sense. It's something amazing. Because a centurion would be something like a captain in our army. I had to Google this as well, and I'm sure somebody's going to come after, up after, afterwards to me and be like, you did not describe a captain very well. And so <laughs> if you're that person, I apologize ahead of time, and I ask for your forgiveness. But a captain isn't, isn't super high, but he's definitely higher than a lot of people and has many soldiers under him who do what he says. And so he's basically the same thing as a centurion would have been back in that day. The centurion wasn't the highest person in the Roman army, but he had many soldiers under him who, like the centurion said, did what he said. He said, go over there, and they went over there, or come over here, and they came over here, much as our captains can do today. But the centurion, more importantly, would have sworn fidelity to Caesar, but sees in Jesus an authority that Caesar does not have. Think about that for a moment. Somebody with a fair amount of power and quite a bit of fidelity to the, the highest person in the world at that point, really, sees in Jesus an authority that is not had, that he doesn't see in his king, but he sees it in Christ. 
Jesus responds, as we know, that he would go with him. And then we get that famous line that we recite at Holy Communion. Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the words, or as we say, speak the words only, and my servant or my soul shall be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. I had mostly a fun debate with a friend as to whether or not it was actually really appropriate for us to say that at communion. And I, I landed on, I think it is appropriate. It is a little out of context here, but we have to remember that the, that the centurion sees something and recognizes something that sometimes even we fail to see and recognize. The fact is, we are unworthy. We are unworthy for Christ to redeem us. We are unworthy for him to send his Holy Spirit into us, to sanctify us, to guide us, to draw us closer and closer into the unity with God the Father and God the Son. We are unworthy. That is to say, we are unworthy outside of Christ. But he has sent his Holy Spirit and he's shed his blood that you and I might be made worthy, made worthy through his works, not through our own. And so as we verbalize the same thing that this centurion verbalizes, we are reminded of the very fact that outside of Christ, we are not worthy, but he has still deemed it willing, himself willing to make us worthy in him. And in this, the centurion recognizes and verbalizes the extent of Jesus's authority. We don't know what he saw to believe this, but he believed. And for somebody with so much power and authority in that Near Eastern context, this is a huge recognition, a huge recognition for a Roman to make. Now imagine you get invited to a party. And at that party, your personal hero is there, or somebody you think is, is really great. And as you're sort of hanging out at the party, maybe you're listening to what they're saying and really interested in this, a person walks in who, who you think is just despicable. You know, it could be somebody on the politically opposite end of your spectrum. It could be your neighbor that's super annoying. It could be somebody else. And they walk in and they start talking to your personal hero and you're like, oh, this doesn't look good. I bet you he's just going to like strike him down and be like, you're an idiot. But your enemy, as we'll call him here, says something to your personal hero. And he says, you know what, guys? This guy has it figured out. You all are still trying to figure it out. But he's got it. This is what happens with the centurion. He's an occupying foreign force who is almost undoubtedly universally hated by everyone there. And what does Jesus say? after the centurion's recognition of his authority. It's not like, don't be silly. I'll, I'll come just because I don't want you to kill me. He says, no, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
I tell you, many will come from the east and the west to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus praises the centurion's faith. Jesus praises him for trusting him in a way that so few did in those moments. And then reminds us of something really important. It's interesting, this is actually one of the first churches where people don't routinely tell me, well, I am a cradle Episcopalian. And then go on and on from there about how important that is. But we often have a tendency to want to trust in our heritage to trust in how we were brought up, trust in things like that. But our salvation, as, as beautiful as that might be, by the way, I'm not trying to denigrate that or anything along those lines, as beautiful as any of those things might be, our salvation does not depend on who you are, but on who you follow. And so the, the, the centurion understands this and follows Jesus in a way so few had up until that moment. We want to be like that centurion and trust in the authority of Christ, not trust in anything else. Now, I started with asking a weirdly controversial question. I'm going to end by giving you my answer. Not specifically, but my method of getting news is to always be skeptical if people I like are made to look stupid and look to see if I can find a different angle on that story. And then if it's a big news story, I try and find at least two sources and at least two sources that have perhaps polarizing points of view. And then I can usually safely assume that the truth is somewhere in the middle. St. Matthew doesn't necessarily do what I do, but he wants you to be sure that you can trust the news of Jesus Christ, that you can trust the good news of Jesus Christ. And how do we know that we can trust him? How do we know that we can trust the law that he has proclaimed? Jesus responds to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. St. Matthew reveals that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of being heeded. Jesus is worthy of being followed. Jesus is worthy to be listened to. And Matthew shows this through the healing of both the leper and the servant. My dear friends, will you mark, learn, and inwardly digest the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you repent and believe and follow him all the days of your life? Will you, by the grace of God, found in Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit, allow the words of the Sermon on the Mount to form your lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.